Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 194, The Chitalja Armistice. First, as always, I want to thank our newest patrons. So a big thank you to Sorian, Chris, and Tim Thorson, as well as to Lily Velinova for increasing her pledge. As always, you can click on the link in the episode description to see how you can support the podcast and what cool stuff you can get for doing it. And with that, let's get into it. Last time, we talked about how worried the great powers and Greece were at the prospect of Bulgaria taking Constantinople, as well as the brutal reality of the Bulgarian failure to do so. After the failed attack on the Chitalja line, the Bulgarian army has taken enormous casualties and is now mired in a stalemate. Meanwhile, Serbian forces endured brutal conditions and hostile local Albanians to reach the Adriatic coast. This along with Serbia's successful taking of Prilep and Bitola, effectively ended combat operations for their army in the First Balkan War. The Greeks, for their part, made a landing in southern Albania. But overall, by the beginning of this episode, November 5th in the Old Calendar, Ottoman forces in Europe have been reduced to the line defending Constantinople, some troops who escaped to southern Albania, and a few fortresses, namely Adrianople, Scutari, and Yanina. But despite all the Balkan League successes elsewhere, the Bulgarian failure at Chitalja means that Tsar Ferdinand has finally authorized civil and political leaders to begin negotiating an armistice. For now, however, these negotiations are ongoing as the war rages. Today, I want to begin with several events on the Black Sea. For the duration of the war so far, the Bulgarians and the Ottomans have each seen supply routes in the Black Sea as vital. For the Ottomans, this is the link between Constantinople and the Romanian port of Constanza, and for Bulgaria, it was their link to Russia. However, the Bulgarian navy was extremely outmatched by the Ottomans in the Black Sea. Bulgaria's Black Sea fleet consisted of a mere six French-built torpedo boats, Though most have been completed in 1909, so they were very new, very modern, but facing them were two armored cruisers and four destroyers, which could at any moment be reinforced with further vessels from the Sea of Marmara. As a result of this disparity, the Ottoman Black Sea Fleet had managed to implement a blockade on Bulgaria's ports from the very beginning of the war. This was initially done with two German-built battleships from the Sea of Marmara fleet, but engine problems forced them to withdraw back on October the 11th. From that point on, Ottoman, Ottoman cruisers, torpedo gunboats, and destroyers maintained the blockade at a distance, while occasionally coming in close to shell various Bulgarian shore batteries. All the while, the small Bulgarian fleet had been monitoring the situation and looking for the right opportunity to strike. I read some reports that the commander of the cruiser Hamidie sent messages to the port of Varna, as well as that in Balchik, demanding both cities surrender or be destroyed by the, his ship's guns. But other sources, most of the ones, didn't mention this, so I'm guessing maybe this didn't happen. But if any of you know any good sources, let me know. Regardless, though, 
Four of Bulgaria's torpedo boats left port on the night of November the 6th to attack an Ottoman convoy that had recently departed from Constanza. Just after midnight, they spotted the cruiser Hamidie and moved in to attack. About half a kilometer out, the first ship unleashed a volley of three torpedoes, but all of them missed. The volleys from the next two torpedo ships also missed, but the fourth, Draski, closed to within 100 meters of the enemy and landed a direct hit, blowing a 10-meter square hole in the side of the Ottoman cruiser. Afterwards, the Bulgarian vessels all withdrew, with only one of their ships taking a hit, resulting in the wounding of a single Bulgarian sailor. Now, the Hamidie was able to escape back to Constantinople due to its crew's effective firefighting methods and the fact that the Black Sea was calm at the time, so this wasn't a massive victory, but still, the first real battle of the Bulgarian navy was a victory. While Hamidie would be repaired within about a month, this, along with the shifting of Ottoman ships, ships to act as floating artillery to aid in the defense of the Chitalda line, resulted in a much looser blockade on Bulgaria's ports. So, although this was a fairly minor victory, it did have outsized effects. Now, this was the only major action of the Bulgarian navy during the First Balkan War, but in the Aegean, hours after those Bulgarian torpedo boats engaged the Hamidie, Greek forces were in action, landing on the island of Lesbos and quickly negotiated the surrender of the Ottomans garrisoning its main port. However, those troops subsequently retreated inland and the island wouldn't be under full Greek control for some time as Ottoman resistance in the hinterland of the island was ongoing. Now, with the naval stuff kind of out of the way, I want to step back and finally take a look at the ongoing siege of Adrianople. This was the third largest Ottoman city in Europe after Constantinople and Thessaloniki, with a population of about 76,000 people. Half of them were Turkish, and the rest a mixture of Greeks, Armenians, Jews, and some Bulgarians. But while few Bulgarians lived in the city proper, quite a few lived in the areas surrounding the city. Now, as I've mentioned, Adrianople's fortifications had recently been modernized, and it was an impressive fortress, which the Ottomans considered virtually impregnable. The Ottomans also assumed that this would be, it would be impossible to advance deeper into Thrace without controlling the city, which explains somewhat their confidence on the Thracian theater overall, because as we've seen, the Bulgarians did not take Adrianople, they simply went around it and continued, very much sort of disrupting the Ottoman idea about how this war would go. Now, at the outbreak of the war, the fortress of Adrianople was manned by 52,000 soldiers with an impressive 340 pieces of artillery and plenty of provisions. In other words, the fortress was well-manned, well-stocked, ready for a fight. The Bulgarians, for their part, were very familiar with the city's fortifications and had actually practiced attacks on it ahead of the outbreak of war. However, while some Bulgarian generals wanted to just rush in and attack the city head-on, from the start of the war, cooler heads had prevailed. Those cooler-headed generals realized that such attacks would be tremendously costly and would draw significant resources away from the Bulgarian forces that were, at the time, advancing in Thrace. Thus, the frontal assault strategy would be slower and bloodier, giving the Ottomans more time to bring up reinforcements from Anatolia. 
Instead, by bypassing the city, the Bulgarians were able to reduce its effectiveness and still maintain pressure on other Ottoman forces in Thrace, which is what we've seen play out. Of course, it also helped that Russia was very explicit that it considered the city to be within its potential sphere of influence, and St. Petersburg explicitly did not support Bulgaria taking it. However, after the Bulgarian victory at Luluburgas, Russia decided to withdraw its objection to Bulgaria taking the city. In essence, the Russians realized that a Bulgarian conquest of the city was now likely, and that Russia really wouldn't be in a position to do much about it, so protesting without any sort of means to you know, enforce that protest would just you know, make Russia look weak, and so the best thing to do was just accept the situation. So, as we know, the Bulgarians encircled and besieged the city before requesting Serbian aid, because as we know, the Serbians were kind of wrapping up their uh, operations fairly early and had some available manpower. The Serbs sent about 47,000 men to join the 106,000 Bulgarians engaged in the siege, freeing up some Bulgarian forces to help in the attack on the Chitelja line. During those early stages of the siege, Ottoman attacked, the Ottomans attacked out of the fortress with a few sorties, but none of them were very effective. Also, importantly, during the siege, Bulgarian aircraft dropped bombs and acted as spotters for artillery, marking well, the first ever Bulgarian use of aircraft and one of the first uses of aircraft in world history for military purposes. Overall, though, the Bulgarians by this point still haven't made any major infantry assaults to try and take the city. They've mostly sort of been content to hang back and just pound it with artillery. However, they also didn't have enough heavy artillery to have a really substantive impact on those Ottoman fortifications, because while not impregnable, they were quite extensive. So not a whole lot has really happened here. But once the armistice negotiations began, Tsar Ferdinand did order an infantry assault with the aim of improving Bulgaria's negotiating position before things wrapped up. But the generals persuaded him to change his mind because at this point, another unsuccessful attack would have had the opposite effect as we've seen at Chitalje, right? So, you know, if it's successful, yeah, they'd be in a better position, but it's just too much of a risk. And if the Bulgarians are just utterly exhausted and engaging in these kinds of just, you know, countless failed attacks, then their negotiation position weakens pretty significantly. So that's the state of things in Adrianople as we get into mid-November. Elsewhere, on the 8th of that month, Bulgarian forces south of the Rdopi Mountains were trying to put their country into a better negotiating position there, where it was still possible to advance, by moving south towards the Aegean port of Degiagach, I think that's the pronunciation, but it's now called Alexandropolis. Though some irregular Bulgarian troops were already in control of the city, and the main force then entered the port on the 14th, and in doing so, cut the rail link between what remained of the Ottoman forces along the Aegean and those along the coast of the Sea of Marmara, that kind of north coast. As always, I highly recommend you go to the kind of blog post connected with this episode to see maps, because that makes all this much easier to follow. Now, even before that port was captured, these forces, those Ottoman, or the, the, the Bulgarian forces rather, were already largely moving to the east and starting to advance towards Marmara and Gallipoli. A force of about 10,000 Ottoman troops were engaged in a kind of fighting retreat as the Bulgarians pressured them, and this culminated in the Bulgarians reaching the Maritza River 
On the same day, the Bulgarians also entered Alexandropolis. But those same rains that were hampering logistics all over the Balkans around this time had also swollen the Moritza River and made it very difficult to cross. So the Ottomans were only able to move about 2,000 men and only two artillery pieces over the river before the Bulgarians forced the remaining 9,600 to surrender. The result was that the Bulgarians were able to more or less secure the northern coast of the Sea of Marmara as the Ottomans retreated to the Gallipoli Peninsula. Again, you can see a map of all this on the episode to see what I'm talking about. Meanwhile, the Greeks were still fighting over an Epirus. There, a contingent of Italian volunteers under Giuseppe Garibaldi's son attacked Ottoman defenses at Mount Driscos without informing the Greek troops there that they were planning to do so. The initial attack was successful, pushing the Ottomans to a disorderly retreat towards the fortress of Yanina. However, the next day the Ottomans counterattacked, resulting in two days of intense and bloody fighting which ultimately pushed the Greeks and Italians back. Now, while this battle didn't have major strategic significance, it did show the Ottoman forces in Epirus were still a force to be reckoned with and therefore made the Greeks a little bit more cautious. Further north in Albania, on the same day the Serbs had taken Duras and Tirana, a delegation from around, well, delegates kind of from around Albania met in the last major Albanian city still under their control, the port city of Vlore, and proclaimed Albanian independence. The new provisional government subsequently implored the great powers to aid them against the expansion of Greece, Serbia, and Montenegro. This was, of course, now a culmination of years of Albanian revolts against the Ottomans. And, well, you can see why the revolts against the Ottomans had sort of culminated in this, because by this point, it's clear that the Ottomans can no longer protect the Albanians, that they are a spent force in the Balkans, and the only way the Albanians are going to resist having, you know, land occupied by ethnic Albanians taken by those countries I mentioned was to stop all of it themselves. Now, the next five days didn't have any major events, at least that I could find in my research, uh, so fighting was largely limited to those ongoing sieges, but on November the 20th, armistice negotiations finally concluded after four meetings stretching out over about eight days. In those negotiations, the Bulgarian delegation was officially authorized to speak on behalf of Serbia and Montenegro as well, while the Greeks sent their own representative. But, Ultimately, the Greek representative refused to sign the armistice unless the Ottomans at Yanina surrendered. And so, the final armistice was only signed by Bulgaria, including on behalf of Montenegro and Serbia. Now, this really shocked the Greeks. They did not think Bulgaria would sign the document without them, and so it was another kind of you know, small rift in the alliance. The provisions of this armistice were as follows. Armies were to stay in place until a final peace was concluded. Ottoman forces besieged in Scutari, Yanina, and Adrianople were not to receive any new provisions. The Ottomans would lift their blockade of Bulgaria's Black Sea ports and allow the Bulgarians to use an Ottoman railway in Thrace to supply their troops, because it basically ran very close to Adrianople and so it wasn't usable prior to this. And as we know, the Bulgarian troops, uh, you know, outside of Constantinople, the Chitalja line are very, very far from the nearest railhead and Bulgaria is struggling to give them the provisions they need. Lastly, a meeting was supposed to be held to work out a final peace treaty in London after 10 days. 
Bulgaria had hoped to get a surrender of Adrianople as a part of the negotiations, but as we can see, they were disappointed. Hall points out that the Bulgarians refused to give up their claim on Adrianople because they were concerned about not obtaining all of Macedonia and felt that, well, if they weren't going to get all of Macedonia, they should at least get some land in Thrace as compensation. Hall argues that had the Bulgarians not insisted on Adrianople, they could have obtained a final peace agreement already at this stage. So it's an interesting way in which the Serbian position over Macedonia was still making things difficult for Bulgaria. Now, the great powers were all extremely relieved that an armistice had finally come. As I've mentioned, many of them were very concerned that Balkan League members were becoming too successful and might ultimately take territory that the great powers themselves wanted. So now that things had a sort of paused, except for the Greeks, they're still fighting. The great powers are now ready to step in as the signatories of the Treaty of Berlin and to, again, work to impose their own vision of peace in the Balkans. However, at this point, you know, they're still going to try to do that, but at least the Balkan states have a lot more of a say in things than they did back in the Treaty of Berlin. Now, in the days after the ceasefire, the armistice, the Serbs made a few more gains in Albania, I'm guessing maybe those troops either didn't hear about the ceasefire or just wanted to be sneaky and grab a few more towns while maybe no one was paying attention. But as I mentioned, it was the Greeks who kept up the war at a full pace because they hadn't signed. And so at this point, the Greeks are mostly just engaged in the siege of Yanina and a few more battles at sea. For example, on November the 27th, a Greek submarine became the first one to ever launch a self-propelled torpedo at an enemy ship. The Balkan Wars are just full of, you know, military firsts. Now, Greece's two submarines were the only ones that any country involved in the war had, so unsurprisingly, it was the Greeks who, you know, managed to knock up this historic first. And interestingly, Wikipedia actually lists this as the second ever submarine attack in history only after the attack by a American Confederate submarine on an American Union ship in the American Civil War half a century earlier, which, if you know about that, it's a, it's a very rudimentary affair, you know, c compared to something in the 20th century. But all that is to say, major, you know, torpedo event. And unfortunately, though, the torpedo malfunctioned and the world would need debate about another two years before a ship was actually sunk by a submarine using a torpedo. In early December, an Ottoman fleet finally decided to leave the safety of the Dardanelles in an attempt to break the Greek blockade. Now, despite some support from land batteries, the Ottoman ships ultimately took some damage and retreated. Another attempt two days later also failed to break the blockade, so for now, Greece remained master of the Aegean. But four days later, the now-repaired Hamidie, the ship the Bulgarian torpedo boats had hit, did successfully break out of the blockade, enabling it to rampage around the Aegean. It ultimately sunk an armed merchant cruiser, shelled one of the Greek islands before departing for the safety, safer waters of the eastern Mediterranean where the Greek navy was less likely to find it. Now, this of course didn't have a huge practical effect, but it did give a pretty big morale boost for the Ottoman navy, which understandably wasn't feeling too great at this point. Otherwise, Early December saw the Greeks complete the capture of Lesbos, take the island of Chios, and capture the southern Albanian town of Korce. 
Late in December, a Greek airplane even became the first plane to ever attack a ship, though, like with the torpedo, all the bombs missed and it didn't really do anything, but still, another historic first for the Greeks. But the big events going on in December were all in London. There, delegates met at St. James's Palace and, well, Despite having not signed the armistice, the Greek Prime Minister Venizelos was in attendance to negotiate on behalf of his country, though the Ottomans protested this, and, well, with this protest, the Ottomans were able to delay talks until December 11th, as they felt that giving their armies more time to recuperate would help and, you know, make them a bit stronger, and they could see the writing on the wall that the Balkan allies were not quite as united as they had been. So the Ottomans are trying to delay any way they can. Initially, negotiations stalled over Adrianople and the four Aegean islands closest to the Dardanelles. The Ottomans considered all of those territories vital for the defense of Constantinople, so from their perspective, conceding them would just make the Ottoman Empire and its capital utterly defenseless. An Ottoman diplomat put it this way to the Bulgarian delegate. Quote, For you... Adrianople is a window into our harem, end quote. In fact, even Bulgaria's representative was shocked by the claim that he was told to make, with Ferdinand insisting that new territories include the Gallipoli Peninsula and the northern coast of the Sea of Marmara, essentially giving Bulgaria equal control to, of the Dardanelles. So, you know, the Ottomans would control the southern coast and the Bulgarians the northern one. Dan F., the uh, Bulgarian delegate, knew the great powers would never allow this. The American military attaché in London remarked that, quote, It is doubtful if the present Bulgarian government could survive the popular indignation which would surely be aroused by a peace in which the Vilayet and the city of Adrianople were given to the Turks, end quote. So, you know, perhaps the, you know, Ferdinand had the idea to ask for a lot and then accept a little bit less, but... Overall, the massive Bulgarian loss of life in Thrace made their delegation feel that they just could not concede on the point of Adrianople. Now, aside from all that, Ferdinand also wanted the island of Samothrace, which had no harbor and only about 2,000 fishermen living on it. So, not exactly a strategic thing to control. Uh, so, it's an open question as to why Ferdinand wanted it with his biographer Constant speculating that his desire for this seemingly random island had to do with its mythical past, and he potentially saw it as a good location for discreet sexual twists away from prying eyes, which could be, but it's all speculation. Finally, on December the 19th, the Ottomans proposed to give up everything except Adrianople and those four islands, which did mean that they were ready to concede Skutari and Yanina, the Greeks and the Bulgarians firmly rejected the offer. As a result, on Christmas Eve, the talks were suspended. Hall argues that, quote, Had the Bulgarians abandoned their dream of obtaining the city and region of Adrianople, which had only a small Bulgarian population, the Greeks would have been hard-pressed to maintain a lone, defiant posture against the Ottomans and ultimately against the great powers. The First Balkan War could have ended in January 1913, and the Second Balkan War might never have taken place. End quote. But while these negotiations had been ongoing at St. James's Palace, the great powers who had signed the Berlin Treaty were meeting to discuss what they felt should happen with well, Albania, the Aegean Islands, 
the possibility of Serbia gaining access to the Adriatic, all the major points. Italy and Austria-Hungary, in particular, were in favor of an independent Albania, but obviously this conflicted with the territorial aspirations of the Balkan states. Now, of course, all these discussions were also not just diplomatic. Austria-Hungary had massively increased the number of troops in Bosnia and on the Serbian border, while Russia had done the same in Poland. Everyone knew that there was a very real possibility that this Balkan war could escalate into a general European conflict, as the Austrians seriously considered, considered attacking Serbia to prevent Serbia from gaining access to the Adriatic, and in their eyes, by extension, giving Russia a naval base there. Of course, uh, we know for sure, you know, an attack by the Austro-Hungarians on Serbia would likely or surely have drawn in Russia, essentially kicking off the First World War a year and a half early. Now, the great powers ultimately decided to recognize an independent Albania, including the port of Duras, but actually deciding on the precise borders was still tricky and ongoing. Serbia remained defiant and demanded access to the sea and was backed by Bulgaria, who hoped that if Serbia got its way here, that they would be more inclined to hand over more of Macedonia. So you can see it's a bit of a domino effect. You know, if Serbia doesn't get access to the Adriatic, they want more of Macedonia. If Serbia gets more of Macedonia, then the Bulgarians want more of Thrace. And so, yeah, it's just all kind of, uh, you know, laying out over the course of the entire Balkan Peninsula with one issue leading into the next, leading into the next. And this is essentially where things were stuck in the early weeks of 1913. Negotiations with the Ottomans were stalled around the issue of Adrianople and those Aegean islands. The great powers were debating an independent Albania and preparing to potentially go to war over Serbian access to the Adriatic. All the while, relations between the Balkan allies were getting worse and worse. Otherwise, finishing off the year of 1912, this was the year Alexander Nevsky Church it's often called a cathedral, but it's technically not, was completed. It will remain the largest Orthodox church in the world for nearly a century and is still a marvel of architecture and a very beautiful sight to see if you're ever in Sofia. Of obviously equal importance, sarcasm, this is also the year that the apartment my wife and I purchased and live in now here in Sofia, where I'm recording this, was originally built. So yeah, qu quite a year for this apartment to, to have come into existence, uh, but yeah, that's a more personal note here, but that's where we'll finish this episode. It's January 1913, and the new world that will result from all the bloodshed of the First Balkan War remains to be seen. Next time, we'll see what will come from all these negotiations, as one of the belligerents will experience a coup. Eh, well, yeah, things are going to get complicated, and you won't want to miss it. As always, this episode is written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by the talented Teddy Raven. As always, you can go to bghistorypodcast.com to get more information about this and all episodes, including a list of sources, a timeline, and you know images, maps, all that kind of stuff. So definitely check that out, particularly for these more military-focused episodes. It's very helpful. And I'll see you in the next one.